We are in the book of John, uh, John chapter 7. We are looking at that together. Um, this is a, a long chapter. We're going to look at the entire uh, chapter uh, together today. Uh, kind of fits together as a, as a whole and really teaches us some incredible truths about how God can quench the deepest thirst of our lives. So we're talking about being thirsty. So I thought I'd make you extra thirsty by just holding on to one of these around. Um, I'm sure you already have been thinking about it. Uh, maybe some of you uh, didn't follow instruction. I know some of you know you're rule breakers. And so you, um, you know, you, some of you might have drank it already. Um, this has a little label on it. We'll talk about it as we go along. But I want you to have it as we, as we think about uh, thirst. You know, this is not a topic that we just came up with. It's a topic that Jesus uses as a very powerful illustration uh, for us. So this chapter, chapter 7, it fits together as a whole. Um, when you look at John 7 and you read through it all together, it has 53 verses. But it's like a, it's like a desert of doubt. And there are many different questions and there's a, there's a refreshment right in the middle of it. And it shares with us a lot of ways that you and I might try to quench our thirst that don't always work out for us. It um, is not just about an, a physical thirst, but an inner soul thirst. And it, this, this chapter gives us a, a powerful and memorable example of the only place where the inner thirst can be quenched by the power and the grace of Jesus. And so we, we're answering this question. It's a soul-filling question today from Jesus. Uh, are you uh, thirsty? So I want to start with our memory verse. It's kind of right in the middle. Sometimes we just kind of flow down through doing it a little differently today. The, the verse in John 7, 37 uh, gets us thinking about it right away. So not only thinking about physical water and how that would quench our thirst, but Jesus' call to quench the inner thirsting of our heart. So uh, the memory verse, John 7, 37, it's on the screen. It's on the outline for you. We'll say the verse, say the reference uh, together, and then we'll quote the verse and then say the reference one more time. Ready? John 7, 37. Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone is thirsty, let them come and keep coming to me and let them drink and keep drinking. John 7, 37. Now you might notice I had some parentheses there. Um, uh, the verse doesn't actually add that. What I was giving you there is kind of an, an amplified effect of the verse uh, to give you what, what is the tense of the verse saying. So we're going to say it again in a minute, but notice that it's not just a call to come and drink, but it's a call to continue to come. And it's a call to continue to drink. And so he's not talking about a one-time thing of quenching our thirst. He's talking about a, a lifetime of walking with him, of quenching this thirsting uh, of our soul. So let, let's say it one more time together and notice uh, kind of the tenses of those verse and the meaning uh, of this verse together. Ready? John 7, 37. Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come and keep coming to me. And let them drink and keep drinking. So this, John 7, 37, thank you. We, uh, we know a lot about thirst, don't we? Um, we, we spend a lot of time uh, taking care of our thirst. When you think about physical thirst, uh, there are estimates that 
about a billion people a day are living in thirst, are thirsty. Uh, they are not getting the amount of water physically that they need on a, on a day to survive. Uh, there are people that are struggling with the effects of thirst. Uh, maybe you might think about an African teenager. An African teenager that early in the morning, he's instructed by his family to take the family donkey that they have and to make his way to a place where they can get water. And that's what he does every day. It takes him all day to make the trip there to gather water and to bring it back uh, for his family. That is an incredible need for water. Yet that incredible need, even though that's stunning and amazing and should be a burden for us, but it doesn't even come close to estimating the number of people that are dealing with spiritual thirst, a spiritual longing uh, for the things of God. And that's what Jesus is talking about. As we get into chapter 7, uh, we kind of turn a corner in our study of the Gospel of John because things are, are beginning uh, to change. And I, I wrote uh, four different little notes for you that kind of give you some perspective uh, about this, this scripture. Uh, the focus as we get here is becoming tighter as we move through the book of John, things are getting a little more difficult. Here's how you might describe it. Uh, John 1, 1, remember, said that uh, the focus on the life of Jesus from the beginning, in the beginning, was the Word, and the Word was with God. And so John chapter 1, verse through chapter 6, that we've been studying up to this point together, focuses on the first two and a half years of Jesus' ministry. So we've seen him moving around all over the place doing all kind of miracles and teaching uh, among the people. Now beginning with John 7, John 7 through 11, which if you remember 11 is the raising of Lazarus from the dead. So from this story uh, where Jesus is teaching about the water through John 11, uh, we, we see the, the Bible in John focusing on the uh, the last six months of Jesus' life. So when we get to where we are right now, things have changed already pretty quickly uh, as this three-year ministry of Jesus is unfolding and now we're in the last six months and we'll begin to see things tightening up for him. When you get to John 12... We'll get there later in the summer. But John 12, all the way through the end of the Gospel of John, basically focuses on, on the last week of Jesus' ministry. Can you believe that? Almost half of the book that we're studying happens in one week period uh, leading up from the time of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem on that Sunday that we call Palm Sunday all the way to uh, the resurrection of Jesus and the days after leading to his ascension. All focus uh, in, on those last chapters. Now what's happening here, note number two, is that in John 7 and 8, uh, we are noticing that the attitudes toward Jesus are strengthening. What that means is those that love him are loving him more. And those that hate him are hating him more and more. And you can begin to feel uh, that separation. Uh, even this chapter is loaded with question marks that begin to tell you that. Uh, one of the background pictures in this section of John, John 7, is that it happens during what we would call the Feast of the Tabernacles. Uh, the Feast uh, of the Tabernacles. It was, a, it was a feast time 
when the, the people were, were coming together, they would, um, they would come together and have a great feast. It was one of the three feasts of the Jews when they were required uh, to travel to Jerusalem. It took place five days after the high and holy day, which was Yom Kippur, which was the time when the high priest would go into the, into the temple to pray for the forgiveness of sin uh, for the people. And so five days later, they would have this great celebration. It was sort of like a, a spiritual Thanksgiving, except it lasted a whole week, uh, usually eight days from one Sunday to the next Sunday. Uh, it, it began with a Sabbath and it ended uh, with a Sabbath. Uh, the people would move out of their houses. Um, now, I'm wondering how you feel about this one if you wanted to try to try this out. They would move out of their houses and they would make little booths. They were kind of like lean-tos made with pieces of wood and branches. And they would live out in the open in these little booths for eight days. I see no volunteers. Okay, I got uh, they would live out there because it was a, a way of them symbolizing the way that God had, had been with them. They would uh, be reminded of the time when their people lived in tents in the wilderness and they wandered in the wilderness. The temple area was illuminated by large candlesticks and it would remind the people of the pillar of fire that's talked about in the Old Testament in the book of Exodus where uh, God would lead the people by his light uh, through the wilderness. Special sacrifice sacrifices were made and the, the temple trumpets were blown each day and every day the priest would carry water from the pool of Siloam and would pour it out on golden parts of the altar to remind them the Jews of God from Mac miraculous provision of the water from the rock so you can see that this was a special time, and water was a very important part of it. So the Feast of Tabernacles um, looked back to Israel's journey through the wilderness, and it looked forward to the promised kingdom uh, of the, the Messiah. So these people uh, kind of living out in this day and recognizing that they're symbolizing what has happened. Now, this chapter, uh, John records in these 53 verses 18 questions that are recorded by John, either asked by Jesus or asked of Jesus. Uh, they're recorded in verse 11, 15, 19, 20, 23, 25, 26, 31, 35, 36, 42, 43, 47, 48, 51, and 52. It might be a good exercise for you if you haven't read this chapter already to go back and look how these questions kind of guide this whole process of what Jesus is trying to teach there. And the answers to these questions provide insight into who Jesus is and why he comes. So it has really a profound impact on us as we look at these questions. Now, I didn't have time to actually do 18 questions. So I summarized the 18 questions with six questions that we're going to look at together. So we're going to uh, look at these questions, look for an answer to these questions, and see how these questions guide what Jesus is trying to teach us today. So um, hold on. Are you ready? Are you ready to hear what he has to say to us and how we could apply to it? Because it's decision-making time, right? We, we heard it in the songs that we sang, making a decision about where we are in our walk with Christ. So the first question of the six is the question, where is Jesus? Where is Jesus? And we can see this in John 
7, 1 through 13. Uh, We see it laid out for us there. Um, What's happening in this section is that Jesus had some brothers and sisters. Uh, Did you know that Jesus had brothers and sisters? The Bible tells us that. There are some groups that like to think that he didn't really have them, and they kind of explain it away. But Jesus had brothers and sisters. So when you get a little tired and frustrated about the advice you get from your family and how they try to try to run your life, well, welcome to Jesus' life. <laughs> That's exactly what's happening here. Uh, he's, he's getting advice from them. The half-brothers and half-sisters of Jesus think that he should go up to Jerusalem during this festival of tabernacles since most of the Jewish men were to make a trip with their family and come up there. Now, we don't know for sure. It seems like they didn't really, they didn't really believe in Jesus. They're still trying to figure it out. They know that he is doing amazing things. And so they want him to go up to Jerusalem, probably for one of two purposes. First of all, if he's not really the person that he's proclaiming that he is, then all these religious people that are there will recognize him as a fraud. Or... If he really is the Messiah, they challenge him. I mean, why don't, why don't you go public? Uh, what are you trying to hide? It's, t- it's time for you to, to let people see uh, who is uh, the real Jesus. Now, listen to Jesus' response. Verse 6 through 8 says, Therefore Jesus told them, My time is not yet here. For, any, for you, any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You go to the festival. I'm not going up to this festival because my time has not yet fully come. Uh, you know, Jesus wasn't going to Jerusalem because he was busy doing the work of God. You know, we noticed so far in his life over these two and a half years of his ministry, he didn't have any trouble drawing a crowd, did he? Now, he would draw a crowd. We, we just saw a few weeks ago him feeding the 5,000 plus uh, that were gathered there and how they went for, across the sea back and forth of the Sea of Galilee trying to find him. But in chapter 6, we saw that the hard teachings of Jesus were not for entertainment, but some people got pushed away. Jesus came to expose sin, but he didn't just come to expose it. He came to die. For sin. You don't understand me, he tells his brothers. People don't hate you, but they hate me because my presence exposes their sin. You know, Jesus is not complaining about being unpopular. I mean, he was pretty popular. He drew crowds around him. Uh, we recognize, though, that, that he's exposing the darkness that is in people's lives. Don't you, don't you know how that feels? how tempting sin can be, how easy it is to do wrong when no one else is looking around. You know, when we, in our sin, are held up to the perfect righteousness of God, you know, we can't help but be filthy. And so it either causes you to love him or to hate him. It's still true, isn't it? You know, he's he's not about entertaining us He's not about just meeting all of our needs, patting us on the back and say, I hope you have a better day. He's about exposing sin so that he can offer an opportunity to give his life for the forgiveness of our sin. That's pretty amazing. And that either draws you to him or pushes you away from him. I mean, if Jesus was kind of a run-of-the-mill, glory-seeking, fame-craving 
false prophet. He could have gone up to Jerusalem at the Feast of the Tabernacles, and he could have just drawn a crowd and done great things. But instead, the religious leaders are plotting to kill him because he's breaking down their religious monopoly. Uh, everything else around him, all the other people looked at the Pharisees and the religious leaders, saw their good deeds, but Jesus looked right into their heart and knew exactly what they were like. You see, the Gospel of John, uh, Jesus is ever progressing along in helping us to understand that his goal is the cross. He is moving toward a cross. He's doing everything in his own time. You know, the crucifixion of Jesus was God's eternal plan to bring about salvation. And he doesn't do it in our time. He does it in his own time. Uh, we are reminded, aren't we often reminded, that God works in his time, not in ours. You can, you can desire him to work in, in your own time. The, the question is, where is he? His brothers are wondering, where is he going to be? The answer is that Jesus is waiting for just the right moment to head to Jerusalem. And at the appointed hour, he would go to Jerusalem to crush the head of sin once for all time. But not yet. His time has not yet come. You know, living my life according to my own time and my own plan never quenches my thirst. This could do a little quenching. But doing things in God's time and in his way is really the quenching of the thirsting of my soul. That's question number one. Question number two we see here is, how does Jesus know so much? How does Jesus know so much? It's, a, it's really a, a simple uh, question. Uh, his answer could have simply been, well, I know so much because I'm God. Uh, that would have been a simple answer. But he didn't give that reason. His reason was that he knew so much because he was sent by God. Now, we have to remember that Jesus is speaking to devout Jews, men and women, who held the writings of the Old Testament in high esteem. And they would have been hesitant to believe that somebody was God, but they knew what it meant to have somebody sent by God, like all the prophets that had been sent by God. So Jesus says to them, he claims to have a message from God. Uh, he says in verse 17, anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. He, he connects here the idea of what you know in your head to what you know in your heart. He's saying to us that submission without understanding leads us to difficulty. In, in, a very, in, in a simple way, it would be unbelief causes misunderstanding. What's Jesus up to here? Uh, you know, understanding spiritual truth isn't simply an academic or an intellectual exercise. See, you can study Greek you can study uh, the Bible. You can quote all kind of verses. Um, but at some point, you can have too much confidence in your own understanding. You know, all of us, all of us here today, everybody that's watching uh, the, today on live stream, all of us have to come to the point where we say, you know, I really don't understand it all. I really am not sure. All I know for sure is that I am a sinner 
And I need a Savior, a Savior Jesus to die for me. And I'm asking him for mercy because of what he's done. You know, at some point, that's when you understand the truth, right? That's when you understand it. It's sort of like um, these, these guys were walking on a a frozen pond, and as they were walking along, they saw something underneath uh, the water. And for several days, they would go out on this pond and they would look down in there, but their view of what was underneath the water was skewed because of the ice. They could see movement, but they couldn't tell what it was, what kind of fish it was, or if it was something that was floating there. You know what they had to do? To figure it out, they had to break through the ice to be able to see clearly what it was. Your will is like that. You can't fully understand what God is seeking to accomplish in your life. Fully understand what Jesus has done for us until you, it breaks through our will. Here, here's an example. Um, you know, a lot of times we think that going to church, going to some additional Bible studies, if I could just increase my Bible knowledge, then I would be spiritually mature recognizing that if I just add all these things, you know, the people that can quote a lot of Bible verses, oh man, we think they're the spiritual giants, right? They can quote all these verses. But sometimes we can confuse Bible knowledge with spiritual maturity. Bible knowledge with spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity means that we're submitting to God's will. We're submitting ourselves to God. Spiritual maturity uh, means when I value uh, uh, assembling together with God's people, that I come together and I'm uh, placing the needs of others before myself, that I recognize that I'm not just spending my life grumbling and complaining about the things that I don't, li I don't like. Now, I'm not, in, I'm not saying don't go to Bible studies. Please, you know, we, we offer lots of those. I'm not saying don't come to church. What I'm saying is that growing in love for Christ is a submission of your will to him. He says to these people, I want you to think about my teaching. Have you come to understand it? Wasn't that true when you were, um, maybe you had a time in your life when people were trying to pray for you and to draw you there. Maybe you had a grandma or a friend or somebody in your life that was always trying to get you to go to church and always wanting you to think about Jesus. And you just, you would just not want to be around them sometimes, right? I don't even want to talk to them because I know what they're going to talk about. Some of you are laughing because you're identifying very well. You're, you're thinking about some of those people. Uh, but you know what happened? I, I remember that. And I remember when, when I got it. Like when I knew that it happened to me. When I submitted my life to Jesus, I said out loud, now I get it. Now I understand it. Before, it seemed like such a bother. I didn't really need that. Didn't matter how much I went to church. You know, there, there are plenty of people that go to church that do what I say, practicing resistance. That means you're, you know, you're, not, you know, you're listening, you're kind of paying attention, but that's not for me, so you kind of just go your way. When you submit yourself to the will of God, when you submit yourself to Jesus, that's when it all makes sense. That's when it all comes together. How does Jesus know so much? Because he was sent from God to reveal it to you and me, to help us to understand what God had in mind for us. So Jesus says, again, we're, talk, we're thinking about thirst. How is he going to quench this spiritual thirst in me? The way that you and I 
respond to the words of Jesus is the most powerful indication of the attitude of our hearts toward God. See, if you hear them and do them, that shows that you're thirsty and that you're looking for God to quench that thirst. But if you hear his words and reject them, that says something else about what's going on in your heart. God has goals for you. God has desires to bring about deep change uh, within you. He's, a, he's about working to quench the, the spiritual thirst that he's put within you. Question number three. Question three in this scripture is who wants to kill Jesus? You might think, well, that's an odd question. But in verses 19 to 24, Jesus addresses this problem. See, Israel's religious leaders wanted to kill Jesus. They had planned to kill him back in chapter 5, they mention it, after he healed the lame man on the Sabbath. And Jesus highlights in this section why they wanted to kill him. He says, verse, verse 19, you wanted to kill me because you say I broke the law. But you, your desire to kill me violates the law. Doesn't Moses say, do not murder? The reason they hated Jesus was because he exposed their own self-righteousness. Very few things are more dangerous than self-righteousness. I mean, what motivates a group of self-professing law keepers like these Pharisees to break the law so flagrantly? I mean, self-righteousness. You know, we often appeal to our own self-righteousness. I mean, no one thinks of him or, self, him or herself as a bad person. Nobody thinks of themselves as, as a bad person. But self-righteousness, that means that you view yourself as pretty good, that I'm, I'm pretty righteous, and yet it causes me that, is that natural response, but it's dangerous because it's deceptive. It's deceptive because it deceives me about how good I am. See, the, the Jewish religious leaders, they love to compare themselves to the worst people they could find. We hear them comparing themselves to the tax collectors, uh, to, the, to the sinners, uh, to those that were around him. But when Jesus came, he was forcing them to compare themselves to Jesus. Now, you can compare yourself to those people you don't like very much. But you come to church this morning and the spirit of God says, compare yourself to me. Compare yourself to Christ. See, we can see that uh, self-righteousness deceives us. It's a little bit like, uh, do you remember, um, remember watching Batman? Have you ever watched Batman? Um, Batman had this character that was called Two-Face. Remember Two-Face? Uh, Two-Face, um, he had had this horrible accident, something had happened to him. And so when he looked in the mirror, if he stood this way, you know, his face looked beautiful, even handsome. He looked so great. But it, turned, it caused him not to have to look at the other side of his face um, to be able to see the horrible perspective about himself. A lot of us can be like Two-Face, right? We look one way and we look at ourselves and we say, hey, I'm pretty good. I'm doing all right. I look good, smell good, feel good, doing good. But we hide ourselves from the side of us that shows our pride, our anger, lust, greed. 
You know, we look in the mirror and self-righteous turns our face away from the ugliness that can be hidden. We don't like that ugly side of us. Do you think these religious leaders thought they were being self-righteous? I don't think so. They thought they were doing just right. Self-righteousness helps you feel that way. See, the ultimate danger that Jesus is talking about here that he's trying to help us with is that these religious leaders lack grace. They didn't extend grace to others. Why, don't we, why do we do that sometimes? Because they didn't see the need that they had for grace themselves. These religious leaders wanted to kill Jesus because they healed a man on the Sabbath. But Jesus' healing and some of the things they allowed on the Sabbath were really no different, Jesus said. They were just anti-grace. They basically said, the things we do on the Sabbath are fine. The things you do on the Sabbath, oh, they're totally wrong. Um, maybe some questions will help. Questions like, how do, how do we treat people that are different than us? How do we treat people that these Jewish leaders had a view that what they were doing was right, and even though Jesus was doing something on the Sabbath, healing the, uh, this man, they thought that the distinction created their own self-righteousness. You know, we can be just like this, right? We're not talking about religious things like they were, but sometimes we, pre we treat people differently because of their age, because of their music that they like. Mm. Or some of the things that, that, that they choose to do, the way they dress or the priorities that they have. Uh, Self-righteousness is a way that we handle uh, those differences. Isn't it easy to catch yourself being frustrated, uh, complaining, angry, being less than kind, when many times you want grace for that same attitude yourself? Wow, I got quiet in here. Because I know it's true. Because I know me. And I've been with some of y'all. <laughs> right? Yeah, that self-righteousness comes in because we want to be frustrated. We want to be angry. We want to get them because of this and that and whatever it is that happens to bother you. What's wrong with these people? Well, the same thing's wrong with them that's wrong with you. We make mistakes. We do things poorly. We make really bad choices uh, once in a while. So recognize, so do you excuse in yourself what you accuse in others? Jesus said what he was doing on the Sabbath was fine, but they said no. And it was an, uh, an expression of scorn and ridicule uh, and judgment, but kind of letting ourselves off. Who wants to kill Jesus? Verse 24 said, stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. So stop judging just by what we see and listen to what God has to say. The problem with, with all of our speculating and thinking that we know what is right is, uh, is none of us see the whole picture the way that God sees the picture. God is a God of grace. How is God going to quench your thirst? He is going to by offering you grace instead of what you deserve. We all deserve punishment, condemnation, but not one time. He comes to us and reveals our sin, but he also offers us grace and forgiveness. Question number four. Question number four for Jesus is, who is Jesus? 
So this, this starts getting us to the core of what this chapter is about. People are wondering, who, who is this Messiah? Many Jewish people were trying to piece all this together. Uh, some were saying, well, maybe it's possible he's, he's the Messiah. Maybe he's the one that God has promised long ago through Moses and the prophets. Some said he was a good man. Uh, others, verse 12, said he was a deceiver. Some think he's demon-possessed, verse 20. While others believe he's the Messiah, verse 40. Is Jesus the Messiah? Well, chapter 6 and 7 are answering that for us. We saw Jesus feeding the 5,000. We saw him walk on water. We saw him talking about Moses and manna and the new covenant. But people didn't like what he was saying, so people were wandering away. And so he's talking to them about how God wants to work in them and are they willing to follow him. In chapter 7, he comes up with this festival of the tabernacles, a commemoration of how God worked through the people in the promised land. It's amazing to me that these people are living in booths with tree limbs over them, staying outside, symbolizing what God did for them back in those days. When you know how they acted? You remember? Grumbling, complaining, all the time upset with what's happening to them. It amazes me that they had a big ceremony celebrating all that every year. All their grumbling and complaining uh, about uh, what, what had happened to them. Jesus comes along and says that he is greater than Moses. That he is the one. He says in verse 28 and 29, I am not here on my own authority, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him because I am from him and he sent me. You know, the question of Jesus, of who he is, is not up for debate, debate in 2019. Now, the culture makes you feel like he is. But I'm telling you, the word of God is so clear. There is no question who Jesus is. Could I get an amen? My, uh, there is no question or debate about who Jesus is. Jesus is the savior of the world. Jesus is the one sent from God, and that is why he is able to quench not just your physical thirst, thank God, for water or whatever quench your thirst, but Jesus is able to quench the deepest thirsting of your soul. That's who he is. He's the soul thirst quencher. Jesus is our Savior, the one who has come and given himself. For all of us. Question number five. Question five is Will you come to Jesus? Will you come to Jesus? Now, now he's getting really specific. John 7, 32 to 39. Uh, in this section, you see the Pharisees don't like Jesus. In fact, they want to kill him because he's being honest with them. He's not afraid to point out their hypocrisy and self-righteousness. He's not willing to kind of coddle them along. Um, everyone in Jerusalem is talking about him. Even in this scripture, you see the word whispering. It's actually a very similar word that we saw in Exodus where he's talking about murmuring and complaining. So people are whispering. They're walking along wondering, have you heard about Jesus? What do you think about him? Oh, I think he's a fake. I think, you know, and I, I've heard this and that about, oh, I think he might be the Messiah. And then the Pharisees come walking down the sidewalk and they, they get quiet real quickly uh, because they're afraid of, of that. So they're wondering, what is this about? Recognizing um, that Jesus is giving them direction. Now, Jesus' call is for them to come to Jesus. Jesus is the Messiah, the servant of God, the son of God, and he invites thirsty people to come to him and drink. 
Man, we hear an invitation like that. We want to come and drink. You know, we, we are spoiled, aren't we? We are spoiled by unlimited beverages. You know, that when they would have been talking about this here, they couldn't go down to the store and just get their favorite beverage or whatever. I don't know what quenched your thirst, if it's Gatorade or Powerade or as they say, thirst, I mean, uh, Sprite, quench your thirst or whatever those commercials say. I mean, those commercials will make you thirsty, won't they? Just, uh, just all the stuff that they, uh, I don't know what quenches your thirst, but it's not one of those physical drinks, even the water. It's the the thirst that Jesus comes to offer to us is he also says, when you come to him, Jesus is inviting the dying to come to him for life. You and I are dying. We all are dying. What can we do about it? Jesus invites us to come to him and drink. The person that's in the desert, strength is fading, struggling to go on, hears about the promise of water and knows that that's his only hope for all of us. Spiritually, our only hope is Jesus. The only water that's really going to satisfy our soul is the water that Christ gives to us. Only he can give life. Look at what Jesus promises. Not only will he give you a drink, but he'll put in you a river of water flowing through your heart. Look at the verse. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. He's calling us out. He's saying, if you're dying, if you're struggling, if you're longing to have fulfillment and the fulfillment of his quenching your spiritual thirst, it comes from Christ. Water to the thirsty. Life to the dying. That's what Jesus offers to us. Come uh, to Jesus. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Seek the Lord while he is near. If you don't have life before death, you can't have life after death. If you don't drink water before you die, you won't have a chance to drink it after you die. His call is to come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Put your trust in him. If you're thirsty, believe in him. Notice in that scripture, it says, come, those who are thirsty, come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, that's the challenge. Trusting in him. And that's question number six. Do you believe Jesus? Do you believe Jesus? If we want our thirst quenched, the real simple answer is one word, believe Come to Jesus and believe. He is the ultimate thirst quencher. It's the Holy Spirit that only Jesus Christ can give us. How do I drink? How do I drink this the way that he's talking about here? I believe. I let his life flow through me. I let him work in me and quench my thirst. And that's how we as believers get our thirst quenched every single day. I gave you this bottle. It could give you a little quick thirst quenching. It's about the smallest bottle you can find right there. But today, I'd love you to think about the quenching of spiritual thirst in you. Two ways we'll apply this today. Uh, First of all, maybe you're in this room and you have never surrendered your life completely to Christ. You know, maybe you have some Bible knowledge Maybe you've been to church, maybe a lot in your life. But I really didn't ask you that today. I ask you if you surrendered your life completely to Christ. So uh, in, in this room this morning, you can make a decision like that to say, you know, I know it's not about 
physical thirst, but I have a spiritual thirst in me. So I want to talk to us as believers in just a second. But before we do that, would you just close your eyes just a second? Just close your eyes. Anybody in this room would say, Pastor, pray for me today. Today, I, I know what you're talking about. I have a spiritual thirst, and I need to give my life to Christ. I'm not a believer. I know I'm not. And today, I, I just think it's healthy that you know somebody like me cares whether you're in a right relationship with Jesus Christ. So would you, would you just lift your hand or look up at me and let, and let me, I'm not going to embarrass you. Thank you so much. Somebody else in this room? Thank you very much. Thank you. I, I know I'm not really settled as a believer, and I need to make this decision for Christ today. Several others are. Thank you so much. Thank you right there. Anybody in the balcony here? All right, in just a few moments, when we pray at the end of the service today, I want, I want to pray for you, and I want you to accept Jesus Christ. Now you can look up. Because I want to talk to you as, uh, as believers. Um, you know, recognizing that we, uh, as believers, I just want to ask you, the name of this message today was, Are You Thirsty? I, I hope that maybe you got a little thirsty sitting in this room today. You really wanted to drink out of that thing. Maybe you have to go get some water. I, I encourage you not to drink this. Uh, it has a label on it. it. says PFN, Are You Thirsty? It has our memory verse on here. Maybe you'd put this somewhere to remind you to have spiritual thirst. Did, do you know, are, are you thirsty? I mean, are you thirsty for the things of God? Are you thirsty for God to move in you? You know, it's so easy to, to kind of get saved and just kind of go on our, and live in our life and we're working our job and we're taking care of our family and we think about Jesus once in a while when we're in trouble or we, you know, we come to church on Sunday. I'm not really asking you about that today. I'm asking you, are you, are you thirsty? Jesus said, if you are thirsty, uh, come to me. Do you know that this is kind of a peculiar place? And by peculiar, I don't mean that there's no other places like this. Uh, there, there's quite a, I know a bunch of other churches that are similar to this, but there's not every church like this one. Would you agree with that? I mean, God is moving in this place. The way we've grown, in a, and, and here's one of the things I say. I say that in a, in a place where God is moving, a place where the Spirit of God is moving in people's lives. I mean, many of you, you don't get to work here. But getting, working here is awesome because we, we meet people and we see situations and we hear things happening because people are being called. That's one of the things I say about us is that if this is a healthy place, then God ought to be raising up leaders and ministers. I mean, people that are being called by God because of their involvement with God in this place. I mean, we see it all the time, don't we? We see it in our youth group. I mean, we've got 30-something kids over there today. What are they doing at Southside? They're over there working because God is working in, in their life. I, I just want, is anybody in here thirsty? Anybody know what I'm talking about? I mean, you're so, th like, you know God. 
I mean, he's working in your life. You are, you've, you've trusted him. Heaven is not a question for you, but you have this longing in your spirit to be doing what God is calling you to do. You know he's blessed you. You got stuff. He's given you things. He's given you gifts, and you just can't hardly stand it. Sometimes people will say, Pastor, I think I was going to just stand up and shout in service, and I always say, you should have. Because I know some of you are sitting there today and you're thinking, you know, he's not just talking to me because as, as becoming a believer like five or six of you could this morning. But you as a believer, you have this yearning in your spirit to make a difference in the kingdom of God. Did you hear that scripture? That scripture said that if you were thirsty to come to Jesus, and if you came to Jesus, if you believe in him, rivers of life would come flowing out of you. Wow. See, what that means is that God is not just trying to get a bottle of water to Justin. God is not even just trying to get a well for Justin to take care of your family. If Justin believes, or if anybody does, sorry, uh, if, if any of us believe and we come to Jesus, he quenches our thirst, but out of us together comes rivers of living water so that hundreds and thousands of people come to know Christ. That's why you stay thirsty. Amen. He's calling you. Here, here's how I want you to respond. Now listen, don't do it. Just cause it's all exciting in here. I know I get all worked up. I just wanted to ask you, are you thirsty? Are you thirsty like that? You have such a thirst in your spirit that you, would you just stand up? Just say, I'm so thirsty. See, out of you should flow rivers of living water. Why do you have what you have? Not so you can accumulate stuff, but so that you can be a river of living water coming flowing out of you at your job and wherever you go, all the people that you're involved with. That's what has to happen here. That's what he's talking about. Don't live self-righteously, all wrapped up in my two-face, looking at my... No, surrender everything to him so that many, many more can come to know Christ. Hallelujah. Praise his name. Everybody stand together if you would. All right, we're praying for two things as we close. Man, this is a scripture, isn't it? Man, what he's saying to us. Because I just can't stay seated. I just can't continue just kind of walking along, living my life. I got to realize that he's quenched my thirst and he's going to use me to be a participant in quenching somebody else's. You know, because a well is nice. A glass of water is nice, but what we're praying for is a river. A river is life-changing. A river can change a community. It can change, it can change a whole group of people. You know, we're not just called to try to change the world, but we can certainly change our world where God has given us because of the quenching of our thirst. So let's pray for five or six people this morning that are making a decision to trust Christ this morning, that raised their hands saying, I know I'm not there. You want to pray for them, don't you? Join me in praying for them, and then I want you to pray for yourself that God will not only quench your thirst, but will allow rivers of water out to those that are around us that are so thirsty. Let's pray.
wow. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for this amazing teaching from this chapter. Thank you for creating questions that cause us to kind of question and look at ourselves. First of all, Lord, I pray with my friends that raised their hand or looked at me this morning to say, I need to make a decision for you. Lord, I pray that this morning in this place, they'd just be able to say, I don't understand everything, Jesus. I don't understand all the things that are happening in my life, but I submit myself to you. I give you my sin. I give you all the things that are just wrong with me that I've not been able to deal with, but I trust you as the Savior of the world. More than that, I trust you as my Savior. I believe in you, and I'm taking the drink that you are providing to quench the thirsting of my soul. Lord, today, help our friends say yes. Will you come to Jesus? Will you believe Jesus? He's there for you. You don't have to go far. He's right here. Trust him. Secondly, Jesus, we are so thirsty. We get tired of just going through the motions and watching what's happening in the world around us and, and just doing all the stuff that goes on day to day. Lord, we don't want to be just wrapped up in our own self-righteousness, looking at ourselves like everything is fine and not really using the gifts and the talents. And all. Lord, there are some people in this room that stood up a moment ago saying they were thirsty that are freshly being called by God. Something specific going on in their life. Maybe called a ministry. Thank you. Thank you for that, Lord. There might be others in this place. Lord, we believe that men and women should have a, a safe place where they can say out loud, God is calling me. But Lord, a calling might not just be a call to be a pastor. Maybe it's a call to make a difference, to care about some people that are being put, put down and aside, to do something with the gifts we've been given, to do something with the resources that we have been given to make a difference in those around us. Lord, help us not to just be people that are protecting our own wells. Help us to be river diggers that are allowing the, the rivers of God to come flowing out of us. May there be, not only, Lord, may, our, may not only our thirst be quenched, but every day make me thirsty. Make me thirsty for the things of God. Make us thirsty as a church, Lord, as we seek to be in this community and the people around us and the places where we work and wherever we go, that, Lord, we can allow rivers of living water to flow out of us. Oh, Jesus, have your way today. Help us, Lord, not just to have church today, but help us to be decisive, decisive in our commitment to you, decisive in answering your question. Are you thirsty? In Jesus' name, everyone said together, amen. amen.